You're listening to audio from the 2022 Liturgy Collective Conference, a gathering for the promotion of rest, connection, and growth. For more information on upcoming conferences, visit liturgycollective.com. Good to be with you. Um, and uh, we're going to be low-tech. If David has asked us to fast from, um, from sound, I'm going to ask you to fast from images. I am a Presbyterian, after all, um, so <laughs> somewhat appropriate. Um, really, uh, it's no virtue signaling in that. I just am completely incompetent when it comes to technology. My mentor is a man named Sandy Wilson. He's the pastor of Second Presbyterian Church, is where I took my first job some 20 years ago. And Sandy didn't even own a computer. So I felt technologically advanced just having a computer. Since then, I've lapsed, fallen behind, and now I can't even make a PowerPoint. So you're just getting assaulted by words here, um, and this is what we have. Um, My name is Chuck Colson. To satisfy the curious, I was just asked out in the hallway right before I came in. I am not the Chuck Colson, (laughs) nor am I his son, nor am I a relative. I was just one untimely born in late 1975. (laughs) Colson was relatively unknown, especially in Wadesboro, North Carolina, where my parents lived. No one thought anything of it. He was just an unpopular convict of Watergate notoriety who was going to jail. God converted him and really, really complicated my life. I've suffered tremendously on account of the name, and it creates all kinds of confusion. So this afternoon, what we're going to do is we're going to reflect on the purpose of worship and the means by which we strive to arrive at that goal. How do we arrive at the goal of the purpose of worship? And Protestants, consciously and unconsciously, have defined the purpose of worship in various ways. Some have defined the purpose of worship that it is missional. Uh, This is just that they assert that the goal of worship is to preach the gospel to sinners, that they would be reconciled to God, or perhaps to display the gospel to the world through a reconciled body of believers being a sign and foretaste of the kingdom. But the upshot, the sum of it, is that they believe that the purpose of worship is that it is the mission of God. Now, others consider that the purpose of worship is educational. It's common in my own tribe amongst Presbyterians. We explain that the point of worship is to learn about God, particularly through listening to the sermon. And so education is at the forefront. Another group considers that the purpose of worship is therapeutic, believing that the goal is to dispense inspiration and encouragement to those who are long-suffering on the road east of Eden, dealing with all the impacts of the fall. And still another group would consider that the purpose of worship is for education, They would argue that the corporate worship allows us to participate in communal spiritual exercises that build us up in our faith. And as we look at each of those definitions, it's important to clarify that they all represent something that is true about worship. Each of those things happens in the context of a worship service, but also I think we can recognize that they're insufficient in and of themselves. Modern definitions tend to flatten worship to an earthly and horizontal dimension, focusing upon techniques, focusing upon elements, and focusing upon outcomes as the primary purpose. To speak into this modern situation, I found it helpful 
to retreat into the past to retrieve wisdom for the present. And so specifically, I've found help in the teachings of John Calvin. He's the 16th century reformer of Geneva that some of you are familiar with. Though perhaps he's most known for his institutes and his biblical commentaries, Calvin was rigorously engaged as a pastor in liturgical reform, and this oftentimes goes missing when we think about his life and his ministry. But what he was seeking to do was to undermine the domesticated piety that was enforced by the liturgical practices of the late medieval church. He saw an anemic church with an anemic and weak and impoverished understanding of grace, and so he wanted to undermine that by bringing a more robust and full and biblically faithful liturgy. As a pastor, he constructed liturgies for the churches he served, did so in two places, in Strasbourg, and then he changed it up in Geneva. He composed metrical versions of Psalms. We heard about this some earlier. He preached sermons, he wrote prayers, and he presided over thousands of worship services. At certain points in Geneva's life, there was a worship service every day. And so he was seriously engaged in the work of liturgy and worship. It's in his commentary on Psalm 24-7 that Calvin proposes that the end or the purpose of our corporate worship is simply this, to be united to God. That is, for Calvin, the purpose of worship is to commune with God, through prayer and praise, through scripture and sacraments. In the spirit, we ascend to the Father, mediated by the the Son, using the means that God has appointed. This will be Calvin's entire theology of worship, but the point is that we commune with God through the appointed means. Now, with this definition as a guide, it's beneficial to attend to two things as we think about worship. First, we're gonna consider the liturgical structure or order of our worship services. And second, we're gonna consider the spiritual dynamics that this order facilitates. And so to disappoint Dr. Ellis, this will only be a two-point Presbyterian sermon, (laughs) followed by a rousing illustration. (laughs) I never took my preaching courses at RTS, so. So let's take a look at both of those. So first, the liturgical structure of our services. When considering the liturgical structure of our worship, there are two rules that we must keep somewhat in a dialectical tension. They both require one another. The first rule is a dictum of the early church that some of you may be familiar with, lex orandi, lex credendi. This is just Latin and simply translated that the rule of prayer is the rule of belief. When we define prayer this way, that is prayer broadly conceived, that the rule of prayer or the rule of worship directs and shapes the way that the church believes, that the way that the ch- who the church is and what we love and what we believe is shaped by the way that we engage with God in worship. Over the past two decades, there have been several helpful works like those of Jamie Smith that many of you would probably be familiar with, alerting us to this relationship, the relationship between liturgical structure and character formation, spiritual formation. And none of us can afford to ignore this, the power in this or this relationship. Now, we find this throughout the historical liturgies, and just to consider Calvin for a moment, and if you looked at the other Reformed liturgies, like those of Knox and others, you would see that there's a very predictable structure. 
there was a confession of sin. That confession of sin was followed by an assurance of pardon. And then after the assurance of pardon, there was a singing of a psalm or some type of spiritual song. And then you went directly from there, not to the pastoral intercession, but you went from there to the reading and preaching of Scripture. And then following the sermon, you went to the pastoral intercession. And in this liturgical order, there is a freight of rich theology, theology packed in without an explanation at all. It was not beaten to death with too many words. It was just left there intrinsically and for you intuitively to understand. It teaches us about sin and humility. It teaches us about grace and holiness. It teaches us about thanksgiving and discipleship. And then we learn with prayer following the sermon that we speak because we've been spoken to, that grace always gets the first word. That was the classic Protestant structure. This order reflects the story of the leper from Luke 17, who when he has turned and walked away to present himself to the priest, recognizes that he's been healed. And then he was the one of 10 who returns to Jesus, falls at his feet, and Luke tells us that he offers thanks. This is what we are mimicking what we are rehearsing in that liturgy. Or we could consider in Luke chapter 8, the Gerasene demoniac, healed by Jesus, and then where do the townspeople find him? Clothed and in his right mind, sitting at Jesus' feet, learning from him. This is what we're approximating in our liturgy. This is what it looks like to encounter a gracious God. We confess, we offer thanks, and we yield ourselves to his instruction, recognizing that it's only in his light that we see light, and it is then that we speak to God. It's been the Presbyterian habit for several hundred years to perhaps put those prayers a little early in the service. That was a novel idea that the Westminster divines developed, but you never really want to be novel in Christian worship, I don't believe, and perhaps it's wise to consider the placement of that of first being spoken to and then learning to speak to God, to move from the word into the world through prayer. But it's in that intuitive structure, as we're learning about the shape of the Christian life, that we see the gospel is reflected and borne out. And through participating in these rhythms, we learn about God in an under-the-radar kind of way, to borrow a phrase of Smith's. And this shapes our character and our beliefs. This is the first rule, that the way that the church worships is the way that the church believes. What we value, what we love is shaped by that. But this first rule leads us to the second, and the second is really just the inverse of the first, and we have to keep this one in tension with the first. Not only lex orandi, lex credendi, but also lex credendi, lex orandi. That is the way that the church believes is to direct the way the church prays or the way that the church worships. That is, that the deposit of faith that we've received, that we each have been entrusted to care and to be guardians over, that that should shape the way that we worship. Our liturgical order should robustly be put on display in in our services of worship. As the pastors, liturgists, and musicians responsible for the construction of our church's liturgies, We want to put that deposit on full display. But this is more difficult and more complicated than any of us really want to admit. Consumer audiences pressure churches to make worship accessible and relevant 
to a culture that increasingly defines itself in terms of its psychological needs. This heightens the role of sentimentality, and it also encourages a theological reductionism. And we sit right in the face of that pressure. Now, reactionaries to this pressure tend to become tribal, retreating into worship forms that are remote and inaccessible to the uninitiated. In some, we don't want to put our congregations on a diet that barely sustains them, nor do we want to dish up such a complex meal that it requires a theological degree to digest. And so to navigate, navigate those cultural dynamics, a team working in collaboration, minding these two rules and keeping them in dialectical tension is the way that we can address that cultural moment. Lex orandi, lex credendi, lex credendi, lex orandi. As we seek to construct those services that don't just fulfill missional or educational or educational or edificational goals and purposes, but seek for our congregations to ascend into the heavenly places to commune with God, to meet with him, to have a direct encounter with him. That said, let me offer one significant qualification. As much as I believe in developing a good, rich liturgical order, it's important to recognize that this too is insufficient by itself. Hughes Oliphant Old, the great Reformation scholar, pointed this out. He says, we have to remember that liturgy is not magic. Just in the doing, things don't get done to you. If we only prioritize the external form of the service, we can easily devolve into a narrow focus upon aesthetics, performance, and tradition. And so we have to consider this second point. That is that we must pay attention to the spiritual dynamics that our liturgical order facilitates. This is particularly where we can turn to Calvin, and it's in his exposition of the first commandments, found in book two, chapter eight, paragraph 16 of the Institutes. And Calvin there is concerned that we not transfer to another what properly belongs to God. And he says that four things properly belong to God. He says that we, one, we owe him adoration. Two, that we owe him our trust. Three, we owe him thanksgiving. And fourth, we owe him our invocations, that is calling upon him for help. And so even though Calvin was really concerned with liturgical order, guys, remember, he wrote liturgies. He approved other liturgies. He was really concerned with this. But his focus here is not so much on the elements and the forms of liturgy as he speaks about worship, but rather his focus is upon the spiritual dynamics that the liturgical order induces or directs or channels. He wanted us to appreciate that there is to be a certain spiritual quality that is to be happening in and through those elements and we're to be channeled into a certain place. So let's consider each of those four things very briefly. First, adoration. This is the reverence and worship due to God for his majesty as the creator and governor of all things. This would be the way that Calvin would define it himself. It's the proper reaction to being confronted by the majesty of God. There is a strong note of the transcendence of God that can make us a little bit uncomfortable in the modern world. Calvin reasons that if everything is from God and is sustained by God, 
then it's right that adoration be directed to him. He is the king. Struck by awe, we are to respond in one way, and that is with doxology. This is adoration. Two practical questions for us. And that is, first, does your worship direct people to this God? Are the deep things of God, his attributes, his being, his covenant, his divine counsels, are these things put on display in your services? And secondly, does your worship actively facilitate adoration of this God in response? Do the elements and forms that we use, do they permit this? Secondly, we also want to consider trust. For Calvin, trust is resting in God recognizing that our highest and only good in life is found in him. In faith, we are to believe his promises. We are to receive his blessings that belong to us in Jesus. We're not to divide those up. And we are also to follow his commands. This trust flows from the simple but elegant conviction expressed in Psalm 56, verse 9. This I know that God is for me. This is the basis of true trust that is to flow out of this encounter with God as we turn to him. It induces us to rest in him. Third, we also see that there is to be thanksgiving. This is just the gratitude with which we are to ascribe praise to God for all the good things that he shares with us. Those good things are shared with us in his works of creation. That is all that God has given to us and all that he actively sustains It's in God that we live and move and have our being. That Calvin was bored with the idea that God would be a momentary creator. That he just wound things up in the past was not the biblical God. It's not the God of creation. That he's the God who sustains you right now by present command. And he's worthy of your thanksgiving. But it's not only that, that he's also the redeemer. He's the God who has sent Jesus Christ. And in in Jesus, as we're united to him by the Spirit, we have all the gifts and the blessings of God poured out upon us. And so we are to give him thanks. Filled with gratitude, we offer thanks with our whole heart, always and everywhere. Genevan singing, whatever your impressions of Calvin perhaps might be. And even though it didn't have instrumentation, it's been described this way, that it was joyous and an unaccompanied roar. Warm, lively, zealous was the spirit of the way they worshiped, capturing this idea of thanksgiving. Finally, we have invocation. This is simply the reflex of turning to God in our need. And that to be a human being is to be one in need. It's in the state of poverty and need and weakness that each of us lives and has our being. We are to call on God for help. This recognizes that God is our only help and support in life, and it means that we have to turn away from our independence and our autonomy, and we have to lean upon God. Several years ago, I was working with a young woman in our congregation. It was discovered that her husband had been secretly abusive, and everyone was surprised and shocked, but as the stories came out, the church intervened, was able to be involved, and to seek help, particularly for her. It was at that time that she attended a a group therapy session, and on the opening night of that session, she was invited into an exercise in which she was given a blindfold and then told that she was to put on the blindfold and she's going to enter another room that was a maze. And as she entered the maze, they said, you can only do one thing. You can ask yes or no questions of the guide in the maze. Just simply raise your hand and the guide will come to you 
ask a question and they will answer yes or no. So she came up with a plan as to how she was going to exit the maze. She walked out very confidently. They had also explained that each time someone exited the maze, their name would be called and it would then be announced that so-and-so has exited the maze. So she increasingly was frustrated as she got lost. She raised her hand and asked the guide the question, am I close to the exit? The answer was no. Friends' names kept being called. Julie has exited the maze. Laura has exited the maze. Flustered, she raised her hand again and said, am I getting any closer? The answer was no. She wandered around losing hope, thinking she was just going to wait it out till the game was over, but it was awful. Like that 30-minute silence, it wasn't going to end. And so here she was. She raised her hand and asked, can you help me? The guide answered, yes. And she said, well, can you help me? And the guide said, yes. (laughs) And then it clicked. She said, will you help me? And then suddenly, the guide says, Charlotte has exited the maze. And friends, this is what it looks like to invoke God. It's not to know about a God who can help you. It's to know about a God who will help you and to ask him to do so. And this is where our liturgical order has to funnel us. It has to be inducing us into these four dynamics, as Calvin would define them, where we actually do these things. We actually give thanks. We actually invoke and call on him. We trust him and we adore him. Are we creating that kind of environment in our worship? And so our worship services require careful attention. We want to pay attention to that liturgical order. That is those elements and forms. Lex credendi, lex orandi, lex orandi, lex credendi. Keep that, keep that dialectical, dialectical tension alive, but even more so pay attention to those spiritual dynamics. What is happening through those forms? There we have it.